0: 2. The Stages of Initiation. The information given in the following chapters constitutes steps in an esoteric training, the name and character of which will be understood by all who apply this information in the right way. It refers to the three stages through which the training of the spiritual life leads to a certain degree of initiation, but only so much will here be explained as can be publicly imparted. These are merely indications extracted from a still deeper and more intimate doctrine. In esoteric training itself, a quite definite course of instruction is followed. Certain exercises enable the soul to attain to a conscious intercourse with the spiritual world. These exercises bear about the same relation to what will be imparted in the following pages, as the instruction given in a higher, strictly disciplined school bears to the incidental teaching in a preparatory school. And yet the earnest and persevering pursuit of the course here will, uh, indicated, will lead to a genuine esoteric training. But impatient dabbling devoid of earnest perseverance can lead to nothing at all. The study of spiritual science can only be successful if the students retain what has already been indicated in the preceding chapter. And on the basis of this, proceed further. The three stages which the above-mentioned tradition specifies are as follows. 1. Preparation. 2. Enlightenment. 3. Initiation. It is not altogether necessary that the first of these three stages should be completed before the second can be begun, nor that the second, in turn, be completed before the third be started. In certain respects it is possible to partake of enlightenment and even of initiation, and in other respects still be in the preparatory stage. Yet it will be necessary to spend a certain time in the stage of preparation before any enlightenment can begin, and at least in some respects enlightenment must be completed before it is even possible to enter upon the stage of initiation. But in describing them it is necessary, for the sake of clarity, that the three stages be made to follow in order. Preparation. Preparation consists in a strict and definite cultivation of the life of thought and feeling, through which the psycho-spiritual body becomes equipped with higher senses and organs of activity, in the same way that natural forces have fitted the physical body with organs built out of indeterminate living matter. To begin with, the attention of the soul is directed to certain events in the world that surround us. Such events are, on the one hand, life that is budding, growing, and flourishing, and, on the other hand, all phenomena connected with fading, decaying, and withering. The student can observe these events simultaneously wherever he turns his eyes, and on every occasion they naturally evoke in him feelings and thoughts but in ordinary circumstances he does not devote himself sufficiently to them. He hurries on too quickly from impression to impression. It is necessary, therefore, that he should fix his attention intently and consciously upon these phenomena. Wherever he observes a definite kind of blooming and flourishing, he must banish everything else from his soul and uh, entirely surrender himself for a short time to this one impression— He will soon convince himself that a feeling which heretofore in a similar case would merely have flitted through his soul now, swells out and assumes a powerful and energetic form. He must now allow this feeling to reverberate quietly within himself, while keeping inwardly quite still. He must cut himself off from the outer world, and simply and solely follow what his soul tells him of this blossoming and flourishing. Yet it must not be thought that much progress can be made if these senses are if the senses are blunted to the world, first look at the things as keenly and as intently as you possibly can, then only let the feeling which expands to life and the thought which arises in the soul take possession of you. The point is that the attention should be directed with perfect inner balance upon both phenomena. If the necessary tranquility be attained and you surrender yourself to the feeling which expands to life in the soul, then in due time the following experience will ensue. Thoughts and feelings of a new kind and unknown before will be noticed uprising in the soul. Indeed, the more often the attention be fixed alternately upon something growing, blossoming, and flourishing, and upon something else that is fading and decaying, the more vivid will these feelings become. And just as the eyes and ears of the physical body are built by natural forces out of living matter, so will the organs of clairvoyance build themselves out of the feelings and thoughts thus evoked. A quite definite form of feeling is connected with growth and expansion, and another equally definite with all that is fading and decaying but this is only the case if the effort be made to cultivate these feelings in the way indicated. It is possible to describe approximately what these feelings are like. A full conception of them is within the reach of all who undergo these inner experiences. If the attention be frequently fixed on the phenomena of growing, blooming, and flourishing, a feeling remotely allied to the sensation of a sunrise will ensue, while the phenomena of fading and decaying will produce an experience comparable in some way to the slow rising of the moon on the horizon. Both these feelings are forces which, when duly cultivated and developed to an in ever increasing intensity, lead to the most <clears throat> significant spiritual results. A new world is opened to the student if he systematically and deliberately surrenders himself to such feelings. The soul world, the so-called astral plane, begins to dawn upon him. Growth and decay are no longer facts which make indefinite impressions on him as of old, but rather they form themselves into spiritual lines and figures of which he had previously suspected nothing. And these lines and figures have, for the different phenomena, different forms. A blooming flower, an animal in the process of growth, a tree that is decaying, evoke in his soul different lines the soul world, astral plane, broadens out slowly before him. These lines and figures are in no sense arbitrary. Two students who have reached the corresponding stage of development will always see the same lines and figures under the same conditions. Just as a round table would be seen as round by two normal persons, and not as round by one and square by the other, so too, at the sight of a flower, the same spiritual figure is presented to the soul, and just as the forms of animals and plants are described in ordinary natural history, so too the spiritual scientist describes or draws the spiritual forms of the process of growth and decay, according to species and kind. If the student has progressed so far that he can perceive the spiritual forms of those phenomena which are physically visible to his external sight, he is then not far from the stage where he will behold things which have no physical existence and which therefore remain entirely hidden, occult, from those who have not received suitable instruction and training. It should be emphasized that the student must never lose himself in speculations on the meaning of one thing or another. Such intellectualizing will only draw him away from the right road. He should look out on the world with keen, healthy senses and quickened power of observation, and then give himself up to the feeling that arises within him. He should not try to make out through intellectual speculation the meaning of things, but rather allow the things to disclose themselves. It should be remarked that artistic feeling, when coupled with a quiet introspective nature, forms the best preliminary condition for the development of spiritual faculties. This feeling pierces through the superficial aspect of things, and in so doing, touches their secrets. A further point of importance is what spiritual science calls orientation in the higher worlds. This is attained when the student is permeated through and through with the conscious realization that feelings and thoughts are just as much veritable realities as are tables and chairs in the world of the physical senses. In the soul and thought world, feelings and thoughts react upon each other just as do physical objects in the physical world. As long as the student is not vividly permeated with this consciousness, he will not believe that a wrong thought in his mind may have as devastating an effect upon other thoughts that spread life in the thought world as the effect wrought by a bullet fired at random upon the physical object it hits. He will perhaps never allow himself to perform a physically visible action which he considers to be wrong, though he will not shrink from harboring wrong thoughts and feelings, for these appear harmless to the rest of the world. There can be no progress, however, on the path to higher knowledge unless we guard our thoughts and feelings in just the same way we guard our steps in the physical world. If we see a wall before us, we do not attempt to dash right through it but turn aside In other words, we guide ourselves by the laws of the physical world. There are such laws, too, for the soul and thought world. Only they cannot impose themselves on us from without. They must flow out of the life of the soul itself. This can be attained if we forbid ourselves to harbor wrong thoughts and feelings. All arbitrary, flitting to and fro in thought, all accidental ebbing and flowing of emotion must be forbidden in the same way. In so doing, we do not become deficient in feeling. On the contrary, if we regulate our inner life in this way, we shall soon find ourselves becoming rich in feelings and creative with genuine imagination. In the place of petty emotionalism and capricious flights of thought, there appear significant emotions and thoughts that are fruitful. Feelings and thoughts of this kind lead the student to orientation in the spiritual world. He gains a right position in relation to the things of the spiritual world. A distinct and definite result comes into effect in his favor. Just as he, as a physical man, finds his way among physical things, so too his path now leads him between growth and decay, which he has already come to know in the way described above. On the one hand, he follows all processes, of growing and flourishing, and, on the other, of withering and decay in a way that is necessary for his own and the world's advancement. The student has also to bestow a further care on the world of sound. He must discriminate between sounds that are produced by the so-called inert, lifeless bodies, for instance a bell, or a musical instrument, or a falling mass, and those which proceed from a living creature, an animal or a human being. When a bell is struck, we hear the sound and connect a pleasant feeling with it, but when we hear the cry of an animal, we can, besides our own feeling, detect through it the manifestation of an inward experience of the animal, whether of pleasure or of pain. It is with the latter kind of sound that the student sets to work. He must concentrate his whole attention on the fact that the sound tells him of something that lies outside his own soul he must immerse himself in this foreign thing, he must closely unite his feeling with the pleasure or pain of which the sound tells him. He must get beyond the point of caring whether for him the sound is pleasant or unpleasant, agreeable or disagreeable, and his soul must be filled with whatever is occurring in the being from which the sound proceeds. Through such exercises, if systematical and deliberately performed, the student will develop within himself the faculty of intermingling, as it were, with the being from which the sound proceeds. A person sensitive to music will find it easier than one who is unmusical to cultivate his inner life in this way. But no one should suppose that a mere sense for music can take the place of this inner activity. These students must learn to feel in this way in the face of the whole of nature. This implants a new faculty in his world of thought and feeling. Through her resounding tones, the whole of nature begins to whisper her secrets to the student. What was hitherto merely incomprehensible noise to his soul becomes by this means a coherent language of nature, and whereas hitherto he only heard the sound from the so-called inanimate objects, he now is aware of a new language of the soul. Should he advance further in this inner culture, he will soon learn that he can hear what hitherto he did not even surmise. He begins to hear with the soul. To this one thing more must be added before the highest point in this region can be attained, Of very great importance for the development of the student is the way in which he listens to others when they speak. He must accustom himself to do this in such a way that, while listening, his inner self is absolutely silent. If someone expresses an opinion and another listens, assent or dissent will, generally speaking, stir in the inner self of the listener. Many people in such cases feel themselves impelled to an expression of their assent or, more especially, of their dissent. In the student, all such assent or dissent must be silenced. It is not imperative that he should suddenly alter his way of living by trying to attain at all times to this complete inner silence. He will have to begin by doing so in special cases deliberately selected by himself. Then, quite slowly and by degrees, this new way of listening will creep into his habits as of itself. In spiritual research, this is systematically practiced. The student feels it is his duty to listen by way of practice at certain times to the most contradictory views and, at the same time, bring entirely to silence all assent and, more especially, all adverse criticism. The point is that, in so doing, not only all purely intellectual judgment be silenced, but also all feelings of displeasure, denial, or even assent the student must at all times be particularly watchful, lest such feelings, even when not on the surface, should still lurk in the innermost recess of his, the soul. He must listen, for example, to the statements of people who are, in some respects, far beneath him, and yet while doing so, suppress every feeling of greater knowledge or superiority. It is useful for everyone to listen in this way to children, for even the wisest can learn incalculably from much from children. The student can thus train himself to listen to the words of others quite selflessly, completely shutting out his own person and his opinions and way of feeling. When he practices listening without criticism, even when a completely contradictory opinion is advanced, when the most hopeless mistake is committed before him, he then learns little by little to blend himself with the being of another and become identified with it. Then he hears through the words into the soul of the other. Through continued exercise of this kind, sound becomes the right medium for the perception of soul and spirit. Of course, it implies the very strictest self-discipline, but the latter leads to a high goal. When these exercises are practiced in connection with the other already given, dealing with the sounds of nature, the soul develops a new sense of hearing. She is now able to perceive manifestations from the spiritual world which do not find their expression in sounds perceptible to the physical ear. The perception of the inner word awakens. Gradually, truths reveal themselves to the student from the spiritual world. He hears speech uttered to him in a spiritual way. Only to those who, by selfless listening, train themselves to be really receptive from within in stillness Unmoved by personal opinion or feeling, only to such can the higher beings speak of whom spiritual science tells. As long as one hurls any personal opinion or feeling against the speaker to whom one must listen, the beings of the spiritual world remain silent. All higher truths are attained through such inwardly instilled speech. And what we hear from the lips of a true spiritual teacher has been experienced by him in this manner. But this does not mean that it is unimportant for us to acquaint ourselves with the writings of spiritual science before we can ourselves hear such inwardly instilled speech. On the contrary, the reading of such writings and the listening to the teachings of spiritual science are themselves means of attaining personal knowledge. Every sentence of spiritual science we hear is of a nature to direct the mind to the point which must be reached before the soul can experience real progress. To the practice of all that has here been indicated must be added the ardent study of what the spiritual researchers impart to the world. In all esoteric training, such study belongs to the preparatory period, and all other methods will prove ineffective if due receptivity for the teachings of the spiritual researcher is lacking, for since these instructions are called from the living inner word, from the living inwardly instilled speech, they are themselves gifted with spiritual life they are not mere words, they are living powers. And while you follow the words of one who knows, while you read a book that springs from real inner experience, powers are at work in your soul, which make you clairvoyant, just as natural forces have created out of living matter your eyes and your ears. Enlightenment. Enlightenment proceeds from very simple processes, Here, too, it is a matter of developing certain feelings and thoughts which slumber in every human being and must be awakened. It is only when these simple processes are carried out with unfailing patience, continuously and conscientiously, that they can lead to the perception of the inner light forms. The first step is taken by observing different natural objects in a particular way. For instance, a transparent and beautifully formed stone, a crystal, a plant, and an animal. The student should endeavor, at first, to direct his whole attention to a comparison of the stone with the animal in the following manner. The thoughts here mentioned should pass through his soul accompanied by vivid feelings, and no other thought, no other feeling must mingle with them and disturb what should be an intensely attentive observation. The student says to himself, the stone has a form, the animal also has a form. The stone remains motionless in its place, the animal changes its place. It is instinct, desire, which causes the animal to change its place. Instincts, too, are served by the form of the animal. Its organs and limbs are fashioned in accordance with these instincts. The form of the stone is not fashioned in accordance with desires, but in accordance with desireless force. The fact here mentioned in its bearing on the contemplation of crystals is in many ways distorted by those who have only heard of it in an outward, exoteric manner, and in this way such practices as crystal-gazing have their origin. Such manipulations are based on a misunderstanding. They have been described in many books, but they never form the subject of genuine, esoteric teaching. By sinking deeply into such thoughts, and while doing so, observing the stone and the animal with rapt attention, There arise in the soul two quite separate kinds of feelings. From the stone there flows into the soul the one kind of feeling, and from the animal the other kind. The attempt will probably not succeed at first, but little by little, with genuine and patient practice, these feelings ensue. Only this experience must be practiced over and over again. At first the feelings are only present as long as the observation lasts. Later on they continue, and then they grow to something which remains living in the soul. The student has then but to reflect, and both feelings will always arise, even without the contemplation of an external object. Out of these feelings, and the thoughts that are bound up with them, the organs of clairvoyance are formed. If the plant should then be included in this observation, it will be noticed that the feeling flowing from it lies between the feelings derived from the stone and the animal. In both quality and degree, the organs thus formed are spiritual eyes. The student gradually learns, by their means, to see something like soul and spirit colors. The spiritual world, with its lines and figures, remains dark as long as he has only attained what has been described as preparation. Through enlightenment, this world becomes light. Here it must also be noted that the words dark and light, as well as the other expressions used, only approximately describe what is meant This cannot be otherwise if ordinary language is used, for this language was created to suit physical conditions. Spiritual science describes that which, for clairvoyant organs, flows from the stone as blue or blue-red, and that which is felt as coming from the animal as red or red-yellow. In reality, colors of a spiritual kind are seen. The color proceeding from the plant is green, which little by little turns into into a light ethereal pink, The plant is actually that product of nature which in higher worlds resembles, in certain respects, its constitution in the physical world. The same does not apply to the stone and the animal. It must now be clearly understood that the above-mentioned colors only represent the principal shades in the stone, plant, and animal kingdom. In reality, all possible intermediate shades are present. Every stone, every plant, every animal has its own particular shade of color. In addition to these, there are also the beings of the higher worlds, who never incarnate physically, but who have their colors, often wonderful, often horrible. Indeed, the wealth of color in these higher worlds is immeasurably greater than in the physical world. <coughs> Excuse me, once the faculty of seeing with spiritual eyes has been acquired, one then encounters sooner or later the beings here mentioned, some of them higher, some lower than man himself, beings that never enter physical reality. If this point has been reached, the way to a great deal lies open, but it is inadvisable to proceed further without paying careful heed to what is said or otherwise imparted by the spiritual researcher, and for that too which has been described, attention paid to such experienced guidance is the very best thing. Moreover, if a man has the strength and the endurance to travel so far that he fulfills the elementary conditions of enlightenment, he will assuredly seek and find the right guidance. But in any circumstances one precaution is necessary, a failing which it were better to leave untrodden all steps on the path to higher knowledge. It is necessary that the student should lose none of his qualities as a good and noble man, or his receptivity for all physical reality. Indeed, throughout his training he must continually increase his moral strength, his inner purity, and his power of observation. To give an example, during the elementary exercises on enlightenment, the student must take care always to enlarge his sympathy for the animal and the human worlds, and his sense for the beauty of nature. Failing this care, uh, such exercises would continually blunt that feeling and that sense. The heart would become hardened and the senses blunted, and that could only lead to perilous results. How enlightenment proceeds if the student rises in the sense of the foregoing exercises from the stone to the plant and the animal up to man, and how, after enlightenment, under all circumstances, the union of the soul with the spiritual world is affected, leading to initiation. <clears throat> which these things, the following chapters will, with which uh, these things, the With these things, the following chapters will deal in as far as they can and may do so. In our time, the path to spiritual science is sought by many. It is sought in many ways, and many dangerous and even despicable practices are attempted. It is for this reason that they who claim to know something of the truth in these matters place before others the possibility of learning something of esoteric training. Only so much is here imparted as accords with this possibility. It is necessary that something of the truth should become known in order to prevent error causing great harm. Excuse me. No harm can come to anyone following the way here described, so long as he does not force matters. Only one thing should be noted. No student should spend more time and strength upon these exercises than he can spare with due regard to his station in life and to his duties, nor should he change anything for the time being in the external conditions of his life through taking this path. Without patience, no genuine results can be attained. After doing an exercise for a few minutes, the student must be able to stop and continue quietly his daily work, and no thought of these exercises should mingle with the day's work. No one is of use as an esoteric student or will ever attain results of real value who has not learned to wait in the highest and best sense of the word. The control of thoughts and feelings. When the student seeks the path leading to higher knowledge in the way described in the preceding chapter, he should not omit to fortify himself throughout his work with one ever-present thought. He must never cease repeating to himself that he may have made quite considerable progress after a certain interval of time, though it may not be apparent to him in the way he perhaps expected. Otherwise, he can easily lose heart and abandon all attempts after a short time." The powers and faculties to be developed are of a most subtle kind, and differ entirely in their nature from the conceptions previously formed by the student. He had been accustomed to occupy himself exclusively with the physical world. The world of spirit and soul had been concealed from his vision and concepts. It is therefore not surprising if he does not immediately notice the powers of soul and spirit now developing in him. In this respect, there is a possibility of discouragement for those setting out on the path to higher knowledge if they ignore the experience gathered by responsible investigators. The teacher is aware of the progress made by his people long before the latter is conscious of it. He knows how the delicate spiritual eyes begin to form themselves long before the pupil is aware of this. And a great part of what he has to say is couched in such terms as to prevent the people from losing patience and perseverance before he can himself gain knowledge of his own progress. The teacher, as we know, can confer upon the people no powers which are not already latent within him, and his sole function is to assist in the awakening of slumbering faculties. But what he imparts out of his own experience is a pillar of strength for the one wishing to penetrate through darkness to light. Many abandon the path to higher knowledge soon after having set foot upon it, because their progress is not immediately apparent to them. And even when the first experiences begin to dawn upon the people, he is apt to regard them as illusions, because he had formed quite different conceptions of what he was going to experience. He loses courage either because he regards these first experiences as being of no value, or because they appear to him to be so insignificant that he cannot believe that he will lead him to any appreciable results within a measurable time. Courage and self-confidence are two beacons which must never be extinguished on the path to higher knowledge. No one will ever travel far who cannot bring himself to repeat over and over again an exercise which has failed, apparently, for a countless number of times. Long before any distinct perception of progress, there arises in the student, from the hidden depths of the soul, a feeling that he is on the right path. This feeling should be cherished and fostered, can develop into a trustworthy guide above all it is imperative to extirpate the idea that any fantastic mysterious practices are required for the attainment of higher knowledge it must be clearly realized that a start has to be made with the thoughts and feelings with which we continually live and that these thoughts and feelings must merely be given a new direction Everyone must say to himself, in my own world of thought and feeling, the deepest mysteries lie hidden. Only hitherto I have been unable to perceive them. In the end, it all resolves itself into the fact that man ordinarily carries body, soul, and spirit about with him, and yet is conscious in a true sense only of his body, and not of his soul and spirit. The student becomes conscious of soul and spirit, just as the ordinary person is conscious of his body. Hence, it is highly important to give the proper direction to thoughts and feelings, for then only can the perception be developed of all that is invisible in ordinary life. One of the ways by which this development may be carried out will now be indicated. Again, like most everything else so far explained, it is quite a simple matter, yet its results are of the greatest consequence if the necessary devotion and sympathy be applied. Let the student place before himself the small seed of a plant, and, while contemplating this insignificant object, form with intensity the right kind of thoughts, and through these thoughts develop certain feelings. In the first place, let him clearly grasp what he really sees with his eyes. Let him describe to himself the shape, color, and all other qualities of the seed. Let Then let his mind dwell upon the following train of thought. Out of the seed, if planted in the soil... A plant of complex structure will grow. Let him build up this plant in his imagination, and reflect as follows. What I am now picturing to myself in my imagination will later on be enticed from the seed by the forces of earth and light. If I had before me an artificial object which imitated the seed to such a deceptive degree that my eyes could not distinguish it from a real seed, no forces of earth or light could avail to produce from it a plant. If the student thoroughly grasps this thought, then uh, thought, so that it becomes an inward experience, he will also be able to form the following thought and couple it with the right feeling. All that will ultimately grow out of the seed is now secretly unfolded within it as the force of the whole plant. In the artificial imitation of the seed, there is no such force present and yet both appear alike to my eyes. The real seed, therefore, contains something invisible, which is not present in the imitation. It is on this invisible something that thought and feeling are to be concentrated. Any one objecting that a microscopical examination would reveal the difference between the real seed and the imitation would only show that he had failed to grasp the point. The intention is not to investigate the physical nature of the object, but to use it for the development of psycho-spiritual forces. Let the student fully realize that this invisible something will transmute itself later on into a visible plan, which he will have before him in its shape and color. Let him ponder on the thought, The invisible will become visible. If I could not think, then that which will only become visible later on could not already make its presence felt to me. Particular stress must be laid on the following point What the student thinks, he must also feel with intensity. In inner tranquillity, the thought mentioned above must become a conscious inner experience to the exclusion of all other thoughts and disturbances. And sufficient time must be taken to allow the thought and the feeling which is coupled with it to bore themselves into the soul, as it were. If this be accomplished in the right way, then after a time, possibly not until after numerous attempts, an inner force will make itself felt. This force will create new powers of perception. The grain of seed will appear as if enveloped in a small luminous cloud. In a su- sensible, supersensible way, it will be felt as a kind of flame. The center of this flame evokes the same feeling that one has when under the impression of the color lilac, and the edges as when under the impression of a bluish tone. What was formerly invisible now becomes visible, for it is created by the power of the thoughts and the feelings we have stirred to life within ourselves. The plant itself will not become visible until later, so that the physically invisible now reveals itself in a spiritually visible way. It is not surprising that all this appears to many as illusion. What is the use of such visions, they ask, and such hallucinations? And many will thus fall away and abandon the path. But this is precisely the important point, not to confuse spiritual reality with imagination at this difficult stage of human evolution, and furthermore, to have the courage to press onward and not become timorous and faint-hearted. On the other hand, however, the necessity must be emphasized of maintaining unimpaired and of perpetually cultivating that healthy, sound sense which distinguishes truth from illusion. Fully conscious self-control must never be lost during all these exercises, and they must be accompanied by the same sane, sound thinking which is applied to the details of everyday life. To lapse into reveries would be fatal. The intellectual clarity, not to say the sobriety of thought, must never for a moment be dulled. The greatest mistake would be made if the student's mental balance were disturbed through such exercises, if he were hampered in judging the matters of his daily life as sanely and as soundly as before, he should examine himself again and again to find out if he has remained unaltered in relation to the circumstances among which he lives, or whether he may perhaps have become unbalanced. Above all, strict care must be taken not to drift at random into vague referees, or to experiment with all kinds of exercises. The trains of thought here indicated have been tested and practiced in esoteric training since the earliest times, and only such are given in these pages." any one attempting to use others devised by himself or of which he may have heard or read at one place or another will inevitably go astray and find himself on the path of boundless chimera as a further exercise to succeed the one just described the following may be taken let the student place before him a plant which has attained the stage of full development now let him fill his mind with the thought that the time will come when this plant will wither and die Nothing will be left of what I now see before me, but this plant will have developed seeds, which, in their turn, will develop to new plants. I again become aware that in what I see something lies hidden, which I cannot see. I fill my mind entirely with the thought. This plant, with its form and colors, will in time be no more, but the reflection that it produces seeds teaches me that it will not disappear into nothing. I cannot at present see with my eyes that which guards it from disappearance any more than I previously could discern the plant in the grain of seed, Thus, there is something in the plant which my eyes cannot see. If I let this thought live within me, and if the corresponding feeling be coupled with it, then in due time there will again develop in my soul a force which will ripen into a new perception. Out of the plant there again grows a kind of spiritual flame form, Which is of course correspondingly larger than the one previously described, the flame can be felt as being greenish blue in the center and yellowish red at the outer edge. It must be explicitly emphasized that the colors here described are not seen as the physical eyes see colors, but that through spiritual perception the same feeling is experienced as in the case of a physical color impression, to apprehend Blue spiritually means to have a sensation similar to the one experienced when the physical eye rests on the color blue. This fact may be noted by all who intend to rise to spiritual perception. Otherwise, they will expect a mere repetition of the physical in the spiritual. This could only lead to the bitterest deception. Anyone having reached this point of spiritual vision is the richer by a great deal, for he can perceive things not only in their present state of being, but also in their process of growth and decay. He begins to see in all things the spirit, of which physical eyes can know nothing, and therewith he has taken the first step toward the gradual solution through personal vision of the secret of birth and death. For the outer senses, a being comes into existence through birth and passes away through death. This, however, is only because these senses cannot perceive the concealed spirit of the being. For the spirit, birth, and death are merely a transformation, just as the unfolding of the flower from the bud is a transformation enacted before our physical eyes. But if we desire to learn this through personal vision, we must first awaken the requisite spiritual sense in the way here indicated. In order to meet another objection, which may be raised by certain people who have some psychic experience, let it at once be admitted that there are shorter and simpler ways, and that there are persons who have acquired knowledge of the phenomena of birth and death through personal vision, without first going through all that has here been described. There are, in fact, people with considerable psychic gifts, who need but a slight impulse in order to find themselves already developed. But they are the exceptions, and the methods described above are safer, and apply equally to all. It is possible to acquire some knowledge of chemistry in an exceptional way, but if you wish to become a chemist, you must follow the recognized and reliable course. An error fraught with serious consequences would ensue if it were assumed that the desired result could be reached more easily if the grain of seed or the plant mentioned above were merely imagined, were merely pictured in the imagination. This might lead to results, but not so surely as the method here given. The vision thus attained would, in most cases, be a mere figment of the imagination, the transformation of which into genuine spiritual vision would still remain to be accomplished. It is not intended arbitrarily to create visions, but to allow reality to create them within oneself. The truth must well up from the depths of our own soul. It must not be conjured forth by our ordinary ego, but by the beings themselves whose spiritual truth we are to contemplate. Once the student has found the beginnings of spiritual vision by means of such exercises, he may proceed to the contemplation of man himself. Simple phenomena of human life must first be chosen. But before making any attempt in this direction, it is imperative for the student to strive for the absolute purity of his moral character. He must banish all thought of ever using knowledge gained in this way for his own personal benefit. He must be convinced that he would never under any circumstances avail himself in an evil sense of any power he may gain over his fellow creatures. For this reason, all who seek to discover through personal vision the secrets in human nature must follow the golden rule of true spiritual science. This golden rule is as follows. For every one step that you take in the pursuit of higher knowledge, take three steps in the perfection of your own character. If this rule is observed, such exercises as the following may be attempted. Recall to mind some person whom you may have observed when he was filled with desire for some object. Direct your attention to this desire. It is best to recall to memory that moment when the desire was at its height, and it was still uncertain whether the object of the desire would be attained. And now fill your mind with this recollection, and reflect on what you can thus observe. Maintain the utmost inner tranquillity. Make the greatest possible effort to be blind and deaf to everything that may be going on around you, and take special heed that, through the conception thus evoked, a feeling should awaken in your soul. Allow this feeling to rise in your soul like a cloud on the cloudless horizon. As a rule, of course, your reflection will be interrupted, because the person whom it concerns was not observed in this particular state of soul for a sufficient length of time. The attempt will most likely fail hundreds and hundreds of times. It is just a question of not losing patience. After many attempts, you will succeed in experiencing a feeling in your soul corresponding to the state of soul of the person observed. And you will begin to notice that through this, feeling a power grows in your soul that leads to spiritual insight into the state of soul of the other. A picture experienced as luminous appears in your field of vision. The spiritually luminous picture is the so-called astral embodiment of the desire observed in that soul. Again, the impression of this picture may be described as flame-like, yellowish-red in the center, and reddish-blue or lilac at the edges. Much depends on treating such spiritual experiences with great delicacy. The best thing is not to speak to anyone about them, except to your teacher, if you have one. Attempted descriptions of such experiences in inappropriate words usually only lead to gross self-deception. Ordinary terms are employed, which are not intended for such things, and are therefore too gross and clumsy. The consequence is that, in the attempt to clothe the experience in words, we are misled into blending the actual experience with all kinds of fantastic delusions. Here again is another important rule for the student. Know how to observe silence concerning your spiritual experiences. Yes, observe silence even toward yourself. Do not attempt to clothe in words what you contemplate in the spirit, or to pore over it with clumsy intellect. Lend yourself freely and without reservation to these spiritual impressions, and do not disturb them by reflecting and pondering over them too much, for you must remember that that your reasoning faculties are, to begin with, by no means equal to your new experience. You have acquired these reasoning faculties in a life hitherto confined to the physical world of the senses. The faculties you are now acquiring transcend this world." Do not try, therefore, to apply to the new and higher perceptions the standard of the old. Only he who has gained some certainty and steadiness in the observation of inner experiences can speak about them, and thereby stimulate his fellow men. The exercise just described may be supplemented by the following. Direct your attention in the same way upon a person to whom the fulfillment of some wish, the gratification of some desire, has been granted. If the same rules and precautions be adopted as in the previous instance, spiritual insight will once more be attained. A spiritual flame form will be distinguished, creating an impression of yellow in the center and green at the edges. But by such observation of his fellow creatures, the student may easily lapse into a moral fault. He may become cold-hearted. Every conceivable effort must be made to prevent this such observation should only be practiced by one who has already risen to the level on which complete certainty is found that thoughts are real things he will then no longer allow himself to think of his fellow-men in a way that is incompatible with the highest reverence for human dignity and human liberty the thought that a human being could be merely an object of observation must never for a moment be entertained Self-education must see to it that this insight into human nature should go hand in hand with an unlimited respect for the personal privilege of each individual, and with the recognition of the sacred and inviolable nature of that which dwells in each human being. A feeling of reverential awe must fill us, even in our recollections. For the present, only these two examples can be given to show how enlightened insight into human nature may be achieved. They will at least serve to point out the way to be taken. By gaining the inner tranquility and repose indispensable for such observation, the student will have undergone a great inner transformation. He will then soon reach the point where this enrichment of his inner self will lend confidence and composure to his outward demeanor, and this transformation of his outward demeanor will again react favorably on his soul. Thus, he will be able to help himself further along the road, He will find ways and means of penetrating more and more into the secrets of human nature, which are hidden from our external senses. And he will then also become ripe for a deeper insight into the mysterious connections between human nature and all else that exists in the universe. By following this path, the student approaches closer and closer to the moment when he can effectively take the first steps of initiation. But before these can be taken, one thing more is necessary, though at first its need will be least of all apparent. Later on, however, the student will be convinced of it. The would-be initiate must bring with him a certain measure of courage and fearlessness. He must positively go out of his way to find opportunities for developing these virtues. His training should provide for their systematic cultivation. In this respect, life itself is a good school, possibly the best school. The student must learn to look danger calmly in the face and try to overcome difficulties unswervingly. For instance, when in the presence of some peril, he must swiftly come to the conviction that fear is of no possible use, and must not feel afraid, and must only think of what is to be done, and he must improve to the extent of feeling uh, upon occasions which formerly inspired him with fear, that to be frightened, to be disheartened, are things that are out of the question as far as his own inmost self is concerned by self-discipline in this direction, quite definite qualities are developed which are necessary for initiation into the higher mysteries. Just as man requires nervous force in his physical being in order to use his physical senses, so also he requires in his soul nature the force which is only developed in the courageous and the fearless, for in penetrating to the higher mysteries he will see things which are concealed from ordinary humanity by the illusion of the senses. If the physical senses do not allow us to perceive the higher truth, they are for this very reason our benefactors. They are thereby hidden from us, which, if realized without due preparation, would throw us into unutterable consternation, and the sight of which would be unendurable. The student must be fit to endure this sight. He loses loses certain supports in the outer world which he owes to the very illusion surrounding him. It is truly and literally as if the attention of someone were called to a danger which had threatened him for a long time, but of which he knew nothing. Hitherto he felt no fear, but now that he knows, he is overcome by fear, though the danger has not been rendered greater by his knowing it. The forces at work in the world are both destructive and constructive. The destiny of manifested beings is birth and death. The seer is to Behold the working of these forces, and the march of destiny. The veil enshrouding the spiritual eyes in ordinary life is to be removed. But man is interwoven with these forces and with this destiny. His own nature harbors destructive and constructive forces. His own soul reveals itself to the seer as an undisguise, as, undisguised as the other objects. He must not lose strength in the face of this self-knowledge, but strength will fail him unless he brings a surplus on which to draw. For this purpose he must learn to maintain inner calm and steadiness in the face of difficult circumstances. He must cultivate a strong trust in the beneficent powers of existence. He must be prepared to find that many motives which had actuated him hitherto will do so no longer. He will have to recognize that previously he thought and acted in a certain way only because he was still in the throes of ignorance reasons that influenced him formerly will now disappear. He often acted out of vanity. He will now see how utterly futile all vanity is for the seer. He often acted out of greed. He will now become aware how destructive all greed is. He will have to develop quite new motives for his thoughts and actions. And it is just for this purpose that courage and fearlessness are required. It is preeminently a question of cultivating this courage and this fearlessness in the inmost depths of thought life. The student must learn never to despair over failure. He must be equal to the thought, I shall forget that I have failed in this matter, and I shall once try once more as though this had not happened. Thus he will struggle through to the firm conviction that the fountainhead of strength from which he may draw is inexhaustible. He struggles ever onward to the spirit which will uplift him and support him, however weak and impotent his earthly self may have proved. He must be capable of pressing on to the future undismayed by any experiences of the past. If the student has acquired these faculties up to a certain point, he is then ripe to hear the real names of things, which are the key to higher knowledge. For initiation consists in this very act of learning to call the things of the world by those names which they bear in the spirit of their divine authors. In these their names lies the mystery of things, It is for this reason that the initiates speak a different language, the uninitiated, for the former know the names by which the beings themselves are called into existence. In as far as initiation itself can be discussed, this will be done in the following chapter.